You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining me today is Andrew Wheeler, the current administrator of the EPA. Prior to his confirmation in February of last year, Mr. Wheeler served as acting EPA administrator, and prior to that, he had been confirmed as the EPA deputy administrator in April of 2018. He began his career during the George H.W. Bush administration as a special assistant in the EPA's Pollution Prevention and Toxics Office. He completed his law degree at Washington University in St. Louis, his MBA at George Mason University, and his undergraduate work at Case Western Reserve University. Administrator Wheeler, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you, Alex, for having me on your show. Yeah, so the end of February here will mark the one-year anniversary um, of your confirmation as administrator at the EPA. During your time as administrator, a lot of what you stress has been the importance of regulatory certainty and efficiency. Yes. So I guess my first question is, over the past year, what has that emphasis meant in terms of rulemaking and the day-to-day operations there at EPA? And uh, what are one or two projects or initiatives that highlight this emphasis? Well, well thank you. Um, you know, I, I would say to answer the, the last part of your question first, two, two really good examples on providing regulatory certainty and efficiency over the last year has been our WOTUS or Waters of the U.S. rulemaking that we just finalized this week and our Affordable Clean Energy rule that we have finalized last summer. Um, both of these rules replaced Obama era regulations. And in both instances, I, I believe, and I think most, um, Independent observers would agree that the Obama administration overreached um, both their waters of the U.S. definition and their clean power plan. They were trying to use a regulatory agency to push um, a particular agenda that hadn't been authorized by Congress. And what we did was take a step back and say, okay, what does the Clean Water Act say about defining waters of the U.S.? What are the relevant Supreme Court cases? What does the Clean Air Act say about regulating CO2 from the electric power sector, and what does the Supreme Court case, Massachusetts versus EPA in this case, say that the EPA's obligations and authorities are? So we took a look at what our authorities were granted by Congress, what our obligations are, and we moved forward, in my opinion, with two regulations that follow the law, both from what Congress has passed and follow the law from what the Supreme Court has told us. And I think that is providing regulatory certainty to the American public, that we are taking the laws and we are following them. Regulatory agencies should not write their own laws. And that's what I, I believe the Obama administration um, was, was guilty of in, in many instances. So I, I think that's provided a lot of certainty. And you know, providing the certainty to the EPA staff across the board and all of our programs you know, I'm constantly asking my, my staff and briefings, the career staff, as well as my political staff, you know, what does the law tell us? What does the science tell us? Um, what's the reasonable course of action to take? And then explaining that to the American public, I, I think that's really helping a lot to provide certainty both to the American public and the regulated community. While I was preparing for this interview, I asked a number of people, you know, what, what is it that you'd like to hear us discuss? And almost everybody responded to some degree uh, saying that they'd like to hear your perspective on the role of administrative agencies and government writ large. Certainly over the past couple of decades, Congress has increasingly deferred to agencies to specify the details of implementing new regulations. And 
Uh, the criticism of this is that obscure and complex rulemaking moves us away from government that's accountable to citizens. So my question is, what tension, if any, do you feel exists between the rulemaking process and uh, sort of the ideal of American self-governance? And um, if there is a tension there, what can the EPA do to ensure the agency remains accountable to American citizens? Well, I absolutely think there's a tension there. And the two areas that we're trying to make some progress to provide more accountability to the American public would be under our science transparency rule and our cost-benefit rules. And what we're doing in these two cases, I'll take the science transparency first, is what we're saying to the American public is that we will make sure that the information, the scientific studies that we use for our rulemaking purposes, the information and the data in those studies will be made available to the American public. And I believe that this will provide more um, acceptance, more credibility, more transparency, which is why we call it the science transparency rule, to the American public as to the basis for why we are making the regulatory decisions that we make. And the second is on the cost-benefit analysis. Now, we, we have changed course slightly. Um, we originally proposed a cost-benefit rule that all of our agency rulemakings would have to consider costs and benefits going forward. We took a look at that. We received a lot of comments, and we decided to take a, a different approach, which is to craft a cost-benefit regulation for each of our statutes. So we're actually going to go statute by statute, and the first up is the Clean Air Act, and that proposal should be out shortly. Um, and it will explain how we're going to take a look at, at both the costs of our regulations under the Clean Air Act and the benefits. Now, um, EPA and other agencies for years have followed executive orders on cost-benefit analysis. And actually, the executive order that we still follow was um, promulgated by the Clinton administration. And that's been the cost-benefit uh, mantra um, for the last you know, 20 years. I think it's important to actually put that in a regulation to make sure that we are requiring cost-benefit analysis to be done for each of our regulations. So I think the, both the science transparency and the cost-benefit analysis are very important. And it's interesting that we've gotten a lot of pushback from people on the science transparency. It actually has surprised me the amount of pushback that we have gotten. And I think that's in part by people who are vested in the current regulatory structure of our federal government, and they don't necessarily want to see that transparency. They don't necessarily want to see everything explained to the American public. They'd rather have an agency come out and say, this is what you have to do, and you have to do it because we say so. Um, I think it's much better for the American public if we put out, along with our um, regulations, the basis for those regulations, why we're doing it, why we believe it's important, and, and it goes hand in hand with putting out what the cost of the regulation will be and also what the benefits are. And I think that will provide a, a lot more accountability to the American public, transparency, and it goes back to the certainty issue as well. Yeah, and if we shift our focus to specific initiatives in the EPA, you've touched on a few here, but I know a major focus for you has been the Superfund cleanup. Can you give yes. a little bit of a background about that program and just explain why that's been an area area of emphasis for this administration and what the EPA is prioritizing going forward there. You know, a lot of the problems in the Superfund program has been, well, first of all, there's a number of sites all across the country. They're expensive to get cleaned up. There are limited resources. If you're spending money on one thing, then you're necessarily not spending it on something else. 
what we have done is try to prioritize the cleanup of these sites. We're, we're prioritizing the cleanup in particular of sites that pose an immediate um, harm or threat to, to um, the American people. A perfect example is the Colorado lead smelter site in Pe- Pueblo, Colorado. This is a this is a site, um, low-income housing, where children are playing in the yards and it's contaminated with lead. The EPA originally planned to clean it up within 12 to 15 years based upon funding available. And I took a look at that actually when I was a deputy administrator, and I said, that's too long. That will be several generations of children because it mostly impacts children under the you know, preschool-age children. The younger the child, the more devastating lead exposure is. Direct correlation between lead exposure and IQ development in young children. And I said, that's too long for this active housing unit to continue to have this lead contamination. So we speeded it up and we committed more money and more resources to it, and it will be cleaned up within three to four years instead of 12 to 15. Now, in order to do things like that, we had to take some funding from other sites where there is not an immediate risk to public health. And I think that's fine. I think that's an appropriate use of the of the funding that we have to prioritize it to where there's actual exposure to people, and we have to get that we have to get those sites cleaned up. Um, we are actually getting sites cleaned up at a faster rate um, than the previous administration. And actually, in 2019, we got more sites cleaned up in one year, the most in one year since 2001. Um, we also have already cleaned up in the first three years of this administration more sites than the Obama administration did in their first four years. So we're getting the sites cleaned up. We're getting them delisted from the from the from the Superfund list. At the same time, we're adding more sites. I last summer I went to Minden, West Virginia. This is a site that has been plagued um, with with um, old mining waste for decades, and the city has been asking for a decade or two. Please be, you know, please list us on the Superfund list because they want the they want the resources to get the sites cleaned up. I went to the community. I had a community meeting in the in the church, which is the this is a community that used to be thousands of people. Now they're down to less than 500 people. It's really been heavily devastated. The people who still live there now can't sell their properties to anybody because nobody wants to move into this community because of the the pollution. We listed it last summer on the Superfund list. So we are still adding more sites. You know, hand in hand with our Superfund program is our Brownfields program, and the Brownfields program, where we redeveloped um, abandoned, contaminated land sites for future development. We give grants out. Part of the Trump tax plan that Congress passed, what was it, a year and a half ago now, um, created economic opportunity zones, and this provides tax benefits to people who will invest money into these economically distressed areas around the country. And these are done by zip code. And these communities are in inner cities, but they're also in rural areas. And last year for our Brownfields funding grants, where we funded approximately 160 cleanups around the country, 109 of those were in economic development zones. And what's important about that is that when the federal government, when the EPA says, we're going to invest in this one site in this town or this zip code or this, this area of a town, that sends a positive message to the private sector that, hey, redevelopment is happening here. Maybe we should take a look at, at redevelopment here as well and invest in this community. And hopefully um, these investments in these economic opportunity zones are going to spur private sector dollars going into these same 
these same areas. And these are areas that have been largely forgotten over the years. And just to see some of these communities um, get so excited about a Brownfields grant because they understand that it may mean additional private sector investment in their communities is really a positive thing that I think is, it's important for the federal government to do things like that, particularly when these brownfield sites are dealing with contamination, environmental contamination that's decades, sometimes a century old. Yeah, I think that there's an interesting approach that you're taking there where um, I think oftentimes people see the environment and maybe economic progress uh, to be sort of in conflict with one another. Would it be it fair to say? To they, they don't. Absolutely. They don't need to be that way. Now, I, I served um, as a Senate staffer for 14 years before I, before I joined the administration. And back in 97, I believe, we had um, was a minority mayor from Benton Harbor, Michigan, come testify before the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And she complained to the committee. She said, on the one hand, the EPA is telling me that we have brownfield sites in Benton Harbor that could be redeveloped and new business can come in and create jobs. And the other other side of EPA, the Clean Air Office, is telling us that we are in non-attainment under the Clean Air Act, so we cannot increase our emissions. Therefore, nobody will want to come to my city and develop new businesses. We have to make sure, and, and that's still the problem today, but you know, a lot of these areas that are, are brownfields or inner cities are in non-attainment areas. So we are focusing on getting these non-attainment areas to attainment. In fact, we have, I believe at this point, um, moved 35 non-attainment areas to attainment over the last three years. So we've been working with the states and the local governments to get their air pollution um, cleaned up and to get the and, and to get the status changed from non-attainment to attainment. And then also working through our Brownfields program to try to get some of these areas redeveloped. And I think it's important to take a look holistically at these areas. You can't just look at the air emissions. You can't just look at the um, toxic chemicals that are in a community. You have to look holistically at a community, and that's what we're trying to do. I, you know, I've, I've talked about our EPA itself is 50 years old this year. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary, and we were created basically different silos. You had a clean air silo. You had a water silo. You had a land and hazardous waste silo. Um, you had a chemical silo. And over the last 50 years, the agency hasn't done a good job of working together across all of these different offices at EPA. And what I'm trying to do is to tear down those silos in, a, in effect and try to get the entire agency to work more in a holistic approach to addressing environmental problems around the country. And a perfect example was our um, PFAS, PFOA action strategy that we released last February which is this is for the emerging class of chemicals that are, are great concern to a lot of people. Um, these chemicals, um, there's over 1,200 in commerce. Actually, there's been over 1,200 in commerce over the last 20 years. There's over 600 in commerce today. But these are the chemicals that were in the Teflon pans, Gore-Tex clothing, Scotchgard. They're in firefighting foam, and they're ubiquitous in the environment. So we can't just take a look at one statute to try to address this. For our action plan last year, I had some of our best and brightest out of all of our offices working together to come up with a multimedia approach, and we looked at all of our statutes. We were, and our, our approach is utilizing the Safe Drinking Water Act, our circular, the Superfund law. It's utilizing the Clean Air Act. It's utilizing our research office. In, in order to provide a multifaceted approach to addressing this chemical. That's what the American public, I believe, expects from the EPA. They expect the EPA to be able to step in and say, 
for environmental issue or problem, this is what needs to happen, not this is what we're going to do under the air program, and then two years later come in and say, oh, by the way, we're going to address this under the water program. They want us to be looking at everything at the same time, and that's what we're trying to do. And I think that's the the um, future of the EPA for the next 50 years. Yeah, and you highlighted an area where um, we've seen really great progress in terms of environmental standards um, that's coincided with obvious economic growth. And you know, what, one of the projects that your agency has put out that we've highlighted and um, I think is important to highlight is uh, last year, the 2019 report on our nation's air. Um, you just provide a little bit of an overview of the trends in air quality since 1970, um, and then sure. just explain how that how that's coincided with growth and prosperity in our country. Absolutely, you know, most people don't realize that our air quality is much cleaner today than it was in 1970. If you just listen to the naysayers and and some of the environmental groups, and it, it's it's to their benefit because if they claim that the world's getting worse, then they can raise raise uh, more. Sure. Um, contributions to their organizations, but you know, honestly, from 1970 to today, our air is 74 percent cleaner than it was. We measure the EPA has measured over the 50-year history of our agency six criteria air pollutants, and the air pollutants from all six criteria pollutants is down 74 percent since 1970. All six have gone down during the Trump administration, and this is. Um, in large part of the EPA regulations, but it's also innovation by U.S. industry. It's working with our states and local governments. But our air is much cleaner today than it was when I was growing up. And our water is much cleaner, too. In 1970, over 40% of our water systems failed to meet EPA standards every single day. Today, over 92% of our water systems across the country meet the EPA standards every single day. And that's not to say that the remaining 8% are in complete violation. They're not. Just occasionally they may have a day where they go above the exceedance level for something. But we're working with those systems to try to bring all of the systems into compliance so that we have 100% in compliance every single day. But we've gone from 40% non-compliance down to less than 8% on the water side. And again, our, our air is 70 73 to 74% cleaner than it was in 1970. Yeah, it's rare to see an agency release a report that sort of looks back in the gains in the area that it's supposed to regulate. How important do you think it is for regulatory agencies to provide context about the challenges they've faced in the past and give an honest assessment of where they stand today? I think it's very important. I think it goes back to the transparency issue with the American public. We need to be very transparent. We've spent a lot of money on environmental protection as a country over the last 50 years, and I think the American public um, deserves to know whether or not we've been successful and where we've been successful and where we may have fallen short. There are certainly some Superfund sites out there that should have been cleaned up decades ago that haven't been, but we're trying to prioritize those today. Um, on the On the air side, we're much cleaner, and we've made a lot of investments. You know, probably the single biggest cost-benefit regulation in the 50-year history of this agency was removing lead from gasoline in the 1970s. You know, most people under the age of 50 don't realize that in the 1970s, you could go to a gas station and buy either leaded fuel or unleaded fuel. You know, today, all of, you know, there's no lead in our fuel anymore. Um, that was probably the single biggest cost by cost-benefit analysis, you know, the most benefit for the amount of cost um, regulation that the agency's ever um, promulgated. Um, 
that there was a tremendous improvement in public health, particularly children and, and anyone who would breathe in the, the lead fumes from the gasoline. So we've we've come a long way in the last 50 years, and there's certainly, particularly from politicians, um, don't do a good job of acknowledging where we are today and how much we've accomplished. And we've accomplished this, you know, every administration, um, Republican, Democrat, we, we all want um, a, a healthy, clean environment. Um, when you read over my, my bio, um, you know, I'd also point out that I'm an Eagle Scout. I still go hiking and camping. I love the outdoors. I want to protect the environment, and we are protecting the environment. But we can do it in a sensible, thoughtful manner that tells the American public how we're paying for it, what the American public is paying, because we're not, you know, it's our, it's the tax dollars. So when the agency says we're, we're spending X amount of money or we're going to cause X amount of money, that's coming from the average American citizen. So we owe it to them to explain to them what their money is buying for it, what, what they're, what, how much they're paying for it and what they're getting out of it. And I think that, again, goes to the transparency that I want to see more of here at the agency. And that um, I hope that you all are seeing more from us over the last three years, that we are being much more transparent than prior administrations. Yeah, no, we uh, have you sort of on a tight schedule here. So uh, just one last area that I know our listeners would like to hear from you on uh, the CEQ's proposal to update NEPA. Um, NEPA's yes. current requirements uh, apply to really a wide range of things that affect Americans' daily lives. Everything from new economic development to forest management, wildfire protection. Um, how do you see this proposed rule change fitting into the things that we've discussed here in terms of the emphasis on certainty and efficiency and your approach to regulating at the EPA there? You know, the NEPA regulations have not been updated in 40 years. You know, this was long overdue. I actually, when I worked on in the Senate on behalf of my boss, um, tried to get the George W. Bush administration to issue new NEPA regulations, and they, and they wouldn't do it. Um, this has been long overdue. We need to get the NEPA process in, in line, modernize it. Um, we need a, a much more modern and efficient approach to it. You know, President Trump's goal is that NEPA um, environmental impact statements, the, the review process, should take less than two years. Absolutely, it should take less than two years. And I was at the Hoover Dam this week. And I forget now how many, I mean, the, the number of years it took them to build the entire Hoover Dam. Today, you you couldn't get the environmental impact statement done in that amount of time. I believe it was four years from start to finish to build the Hoover Dam. It would take probably double that just to do the environmental review under the NEPA law, which is, which is crazy. Um, we know what the environmental impacts are on projects. We can certainly get a review done um, within, a, within a set amount of time under two years. What the NEPA process has turned into is a welfare program for lawyers. What I've seen since I've been here at the agency is not that um, people are having to analyze the environmental impacts for, this, for the sake of understanding what the environmental impacts are. It's making sure that you have an, enough supporting documentation for the lawsuits that are going to come from any project. You know, so this is it's all about preparing documents for potential lawsuits than it is about analyzing a project for the environmental impact. We need to get back to analyzing the projects for the environmental impact and have a streamlined approach so that these projects can either be approved or disapproved within two years. I think that's all I have for you today. Um, before we go, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention? Uh, yes, we're, we're planning um, 
some events across the country to coincide with Earth Day on some cleanup activities around the country. Um, it's also the 50th anniversary of Earth Day as well as the 50th anniversary of EPA. And um, we'll be having other announcements as the year goes on. Each month we're going to be focusing on a different environmental topic. Um, coming up in February will be water, and we'll be focusing each week on the advancements that we've done over the last 50 years to ensure safe, clean water for all Americans. My guest today has been Andrew Wheeler, the current administrator of the EPA. Mr. Wheeler, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Alex. Great being on your show. Thanks.